Hi, Pastor Mike Fabares here. In August 2024, you're invited to join me on a seven-day cruise to Alaska. Delve into God's Word while taking in the rugged beauty of the Alaskan coast. Visit focalpointministries.org slash Alaska. Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. The corporate mission of the church is to give that eternal grace message, which is Christ and Him crucified and proclaiming that to the nations. Along the way, we will do the good works, but the point is we're concerned about the ultimate message which we are tasked to do. Now, it's both and, it's not either or. And we need to remember it's both and and not either or. heard the quip, some Christians are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good? Well, the opposite is also true. If we only do good and fail to share the gospel, then we've missed the main point. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares explains that earthly blessings are nice, but they are temporary and should point people to an eternal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm Dave Drewy, and we're in Acts chapter 8, and now here's Pastor Mike Fabares with a message titled, Grateful for Secondary Benefits. The last time we were together, we started a study of Acts chapter 8, and my study of that chapter led me to entitle our study of this chapter, Gospel Advance, Gospel Advance, which sounds real good as long as someone else is doing it, because if I'm involved in advancing the gospel in my generation or my culture or my office, my neighborhood, it, it, it can be scary. It is a fear-inducing kind of thing. As a matter of fact, your last message, Pastor Mike, reminded us of all the cultural pushback that we can get and even persecution that we may endure if we try to advance the gospel in this world. Uh, and all of that is true. I understand it can be a scary thing, but I also want us to remember, as we'll see today in verses 5 through 8, that it should also be a joyful experience. There should be joy in the process. There ought to be joy, obviously, in the product. If you think about Luke chapter 15, it was really surprising the extent to which Jesus went to say that when one sinner repents, I mean, there is joy in heaven. The angels in heaven Rejoice. I mean, that's just an amazing thought that if you have success in advancing the gospel into one more person's life and they respond rightly by repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ, that there's some kind of joyful celebration in heaven. That's just a big deal. And of course, if you've ever experienced it, of course, that joy seems to overflow onto earth and you have a sense of gratification and fulfillment. How good it is to really be the agent that brings someone to faith in Christ. That's that is a good thing, a gratifying thing. But sometimes we don't experience that, not because we are not well-versed in the gospel, not because we're not good at defending the faith. Sometimes we may be really good at all those things, but we miss out on this joyful experience because of something we're failing to do. And I'd like to look at that component that's often missing in our evangelism, and it's found here in Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. And I think if we think this through carefully, we'll recognize there's a lot more to this other component than we tend to think, particularly if we're just focused on that message, which is critical and essential and foundational. But there's more to it going on in this passage. 
Now, let me read this for you from the English Standard Version, and I know even as I read it, you're going to throw a flag on the play. I just know you're going to throw a flag. This, you're going to say, well, that's a great passage, Pastor Mike, but I don't understand how we can do that. I get this. The book of Acts is a unique transitional book, uh, talking about even in the book of Hebrews how that first generation that was given a New Testament message did not have a written New Testament. Therefore, God was authenticating that. The word translated in Hebrews chapter 2 is to attest. There was an attestation of the message through miraculous signs. And we're going to see Philip here go into a new region, and he's going to do those things. And you think, well, that'd be great. Uh, I could have a lot more joyful experience doing evangelism if I could, you know, heal the sick and raise the dead and all that too. I get that. But do not dismiss this passage as we often do as, oh, well, yeah, they have special apostolic age kinds of things going on. And since it's different now, mine's just a duty and a drudgery and a fear-inducing process. Listen, there is something in this paradigm that you need to pick up that I think may change the way you even approach our task. Matter of fact, there's a lot of enjoyment that we can even get from the process of doing what God asks us to do beyond just sharing a message, and I want to show it to you in this text. So let me read it for you, beginning in verse number five, when it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Down to the city. Down. If you go to Israel with us, you'll know that the Samaria is an area that now we call the West Bank, and if you know a little bit about politics between 1940 and 1960, 70, you'll recognize that that area there, the West Bank, is north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem and the surrounding region, Judea, up north in the West Bank, or what was then Samaria, that is north, and yet it says gone down. If we go to San Diego, we say we're going down to San Diego. If we go to LA, we're going up to LA. But in those days, particularly the people that traveled on foot, even the topography would remind you, Jerusalem's at about 2,500 feet above elevation, uh, sea level. You left Jerusalem, the seven hills there, you would go down from Jerusalem. Not only that, there's a kind of a metaphorical sense in which, you know, this is God's important city. Zion is the idealized, you know, vision of this city, Jerusalem. You're going to leave that city and go some other city? Well, you're going down, right? You're going down. So going down from Jerusalem is, is whether you're going north, east, south, or, south or west. And this is going north. So just whatever. Get your geography in mind, and you can see Philip now going. And why are they leaving? Look back up at the first four verses, because there was persecution that was breaking out. And so God was scattering his church to do what he said should be done in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is he was going to have these people be his witnesses, do evangelism, in Jerusalem, the capital, Judea, the region, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. Now, Samaria was an important region to identify because the demarcation of that particular place should be one that was mind-blowing for you theologically even. Because the Samaritans, as you might remember from reading the Gospels, they were not getting along with those in Judea and Jerusalem. The Jewish people did not like the Samaritans, which goes all the way back to the Old Testament in the 8th century before Christ when the 10 northern tribes, you remember we had one Israel broken down into 12 tribes, well they split you know, at about 1000 BC. And then in 721, the Assyrians came in out of God's sovereign punishment of those northern tribes, and he let Assyria come in and defeat them. And when he defeated them, he took many of them and hauled them off as slaves, just like we saw later in the 6th century BC when God did that to the southern tribes. But that northern tribes, those 10 tribes, they were not only taken away as captives, many of them, but they were also settled by the Assyrians. The Assyrians came in from Mesopotamia and they came over and they basically occupied the 
lands and all the people that were left there, they began to just integrate with them and intermarry with them. And so you had a lot of the syncretizing effect of religion, at least from the perspective of the Jewish people in Jerusalem and Judea, and, and they saw these people as fully compromised theologically. Now, they weren't fully comp compromised theologically, but they did reject all of the prophets and everything after the Pentateuch. So the first five books of the Old Testament, they adhered to and they believed in, but when they went back after the Babylonian exile and the return under Ezra and Nehemiah, and they said, hey, we want to come worship there in Jerusalem at the rebuilt temple that Zerubbabel rebuilt, the, the, the Jews said, no, you're not coming here. You, you are not going to worship in Jerusalem. And so they ended up in the northern tribes here, which ended up being called Samaria. They ended up building their own temple in uh, a place called Mount Gerizim. All of that, just to remind you of those little phrases in the gospel that you'll read, whenever a Samaritan comes up, you'll often find some clarifying parenthetical statement like, oh, and the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Remember when Jesus was traveling through Samaria, which most Jews did not do, as he was getting up to Galilee, back where he was born, doing ministry up there, up north, where there was an enclave of Jewish people, he, it says, had to go through Samaria, which of course he didn't have to, because most Jews went around the Transjordan, across the Jordan River to get up to Galilee, but instead, he went directly through it because he had a mission. He was preparing the way for guys like Philip and the church to do evangelism there. And as he sat there with the woman in a place called Sychar, we call her the woman at the well because he has a conversation with her at the well, you'll remember that even she says, why are you talking to me, right? You're a Jew and I'm a, I'm a Samaritan woman. We don't get along because that was the animosity and hostility that the Samaritans had with the Jewish people. So Philip is going into theologically hostile territory, culturally hostile territory, but he goes in there just like Jesus had done and he's going to share the truth about the Christ. So let's read that sentence again, verse five. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. We don't know which one one of the cities, a major city, and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord ran him out of town because he was a Jew and they were Samaritans and they said, we don't want anything to do with your theology. Underscore and highlight all of that. Do you see that there in verse six? Hmm. Not what you would expect. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and... They didn't just hear him talk about the gospel and the Christ, and they saw the signs that he did. Two things here. Well, what kind of signs did he do? We're talking about billboards, sandwich boards. What was he doing? No, no, no. We're not talking about those signs. As a matter of fact, the word sign throughout the New Testament is used in a technical sense of these miraculous things that the apostles in Christ did. Well, here's a unique experience of someone, later known as Philip the Evangelist, who's doing some of the things that the apostles did. Miraculous signs. Like what? Well, the demons, they're always out for the worst in human beings, right? As John 10 says, Satan just wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to mess things up. And I'm on a sidebar here, but if you think about all the things the Bible says Satan wants to do in the lives of people, right? They're all destructive. They're all negative. And they're not all like, you know, head spinning around and projectile vomit and eyes turning green. That's not, I mean, I know you've seen that on TV, but that, that's, I mean, he wants to mess up relationships. He wants to make factions in the church. He wants to see families destroyed. He wants divorced homes. He wants, you know, all the bad stuff, including even physical ailments, as you saw Job's body being touched by Satan in the Old Testament, remember? All of that. So unclean spirits who have it, have it out for the worst of human beings, uh, as Philip comes into town, what was he doing? Well, he was doing things that ejected these spirits, crying out with a loud voice. They came out of many who had them, and some of them had the effects of, of some kind of, of ailment, right? Like paralysis. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Wow, 
that's amazing. So that there was much joy in that city. You're talking about joy. Yeah, evangelism would be a whole lot better if I could just go to a mission hospital, walk through, then just healed, 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 healed. Yeah, now let me tell you about Christ. Yeah, that's great, awesome. That would be great. But that's not what you can do. I get that. I understand that. But do not miss the paradigm. And the paradigm is there's two things that Philip is concerned with about people getting their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You've got to get right with the Christ. You've got to know Jesus to have that experience. And what surrounded that were signs that pointed to the God who had the grace in Christ to save you. Hey, look at that God. He's a good God. Matter of fact, Fred, that's in a wheelchair, listen, I'm going to pop him out of that wheelchair. There's a good thing that God did. Now listen to me about the Christ, because those two legs that weren't working that now are working are not going to work again because they're going to be laid in a tomb one day. So that is a temporary fix even if there were blind people in that town, right? Those eyes that now are seeing that weren't seeing, guess what? Those eyes are not going to be seeing in a matter of decades. But that temporal thing is a big deal. It gets people's attention, and it's a good thing. Any good thing, according to James chapter 1, verse 17, is a gift from God. Anything good, every good and perfect gift comes from God. So when God does those good things, we know this. It's God injecting himself into space and time to provide things that are beneficial, that are favorable, that are enjoyable for human beings. And human beings are in a state of rebellion, moral rebellion against God. And when God gives good things to bad people, which is what we all are, we call that in the Bible grace. God gives grace to people. He gives grace to people, and we always think about grace in terms of the ultimate gift of grace, which is eternal life, which is bound up in the message of Christ. You get right with Christ, you get grace, you get to go to heaven when you should go to hell. Hey, guess what? If you're in a messed up world where things in the world are messed up, as he said would happen in Genesis 3, you are morally rebellious, you're going to live in a world of physical rebellion. Even your body's going to rebel against you. He could have walked away and said, well, that's what you get. You get what you deserve. But instead, from time to time, we see in the Bible even miraculous things where God is saying, I'm reversing all that, in a gracious act of mercy for people. Those are also grace. They're grace on a different scale. Those are two kinds of grace, and they're both good things. You just need to distinguish the two in your minds. Not to poo-poo the one, it's just to put it in perspective. And that is that there is saving grace or eternal grace, and then there's temple grace, and that's any other good thing that God happens to do in this world. So let's, number one on your outline, distinguish those two. Distinguish, distinguish eternal and temporal grace. They're all unmerited. We don't deserve anything good from God. But God does good things. And again, you're going to go, wow, I'm throwing a flag on that play right there because I cannot do those things. Maybe they were gifted to do those things, but I'm not a healer. Great, I get that. Speaking of Samaritans, there was a Samaritan that Jesus talked about in a parable that he told, coming, speaking of the elevation differences, going down to Jericho, which is down toward the Judean desert. I guess from your direction, it's this way. And here's Jerusalem. And if you go there with us to Israel, you'll see we take a bus down a road that was probably parallel or near the road that they would walk on from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's called the Jericho Road, obviously. And it goes through a lot of elevations and switchbacks and through the crags of the rocks. You can see that if you're a robber, that's a great place to jump out from behind a rock and, and rob someone. And that was a dangerous part of the travels in the ancient world. And so Jesus tells a story they could all identify with, saying, hey, someone was on the road to Jericho. Oh, yeah, that road. I know that road. That's, you better be careful. Watch your back on that road. Yeah. And you know what? A guy gets jumped and robbed. So he gets beaten and robbed and left for dead on the road. And he tells the story. This is the story of the Good Samaritan, but it first starts with two Jewish guys that see a Jewish guy laying in the street and he's bleeding out and he's in pain and he's just been robbed and he's got no money. 
And first you get the Pharisee, you get the Levite, and they're like, ah, eh, don't got time for that. You got a Samaritan that shows up in the story, and he shows up and sees the man who'd been beaten and robbed, and he walks up to him and he goes, presto changeo, abracadabra, and he's healed. That's the story, right? Is that what happens? No. I think I remember the story differently. Well, what do you remember about the story? What does the good Samaritan do? Oh, he does something that I think the wife of the guy that got beat, when she finds out that he was left for dead on the road, is really glad that the Samaritan did. He did something great, gracious, merciful. He takes his wounds and he pours his oil from his backpack or his knapsack or the donkey's bags, and he pours it on the wounds, and he takes wine, the antiseptic, and pours it on the wounds. He takes bandages and he bandages them up. He puts them on his animal. He takes them to an inn to convalesce. He pays the fee. Of course, the guy has no money on him because he's been robbed. And then he says, listen, guy, if he racks up any other bill or needs anything, I'll be back by this way, and I will pay whatever bill he racks up. It's amazing. Super gracious. And you know what the Bible says? That we are to go and do the same. And for God in this world, even if it's someone who's sick, though I can't say abracadabra, presto changeo, you're well, I can say, let me do what I can do. You know what? Philip could go in there where there were people that were paralyzed and say, hey, stand up and walk. You can't do that? What can you do? What can you do as the extension of God's grace in this world to do good things? Well, then that is what you can do, and that is what you ought to do, but you need to know that that is not all you should do. You should do what Philip was doing, which is both, because he recognizes one is a gift of grace, and it's good, but it's a temporal grace, and then there's another grace, and that grace is an eternal grace. I want you to have that eternal grace, and that distinguishing categorization of these two kinds of graces very helpful for us to think through. Because some people in their Christianity are just focused on the temporal graces. Matter of fact, some churches are just focused on that. That's what we're going to be about, improving society, right? We're going to start hospitals, and we're going to feed people and send nets to the people that need them for, you know, their mosquitoes, and we're going to dig wells. Listen, all of that's good, but that's not the corporate mission of the church. The corporate mission of the church is to give that eternal grace message, which is Christ and him crucified, and proclaiming that to the nations. Along the way, we will do the good works, but the point is, we're concerned about the ultimate message, which we are tasked to do. Now, it's both and, it's not either or, and we need to remember it's both and and not either or. But Jesus said, if you really want to look at the value of both, remember this, it'd be better for you, to quote Jesus, to enter life, eternal life, lame, crippled, paralyzed, your feet don't work, than to have two legs that work and to be cast into hell. Better for you to be blind, no sight, right? To have that grace removed from your life and to enter eternal life, right? Than for you to have two eyes that can see really well and to be cast into outer darkness. As a matter of fact, he compounds it with this statement, which I know you remember. What would it really, right? I'm using the word really, but this is the rhetorical nature of the question. What would it really profit a person? If he gained the whole world, you want to talk about grace? You want to talk about good things? If he had every good thing possible, I mean, anything that could have happened bad to him, he didn't have because God was so great. He didn't even have a headache. Never had a hangnail. If he gained the whole world and lost his soul, and you know the rhetorical answer to that is, it really wouldn't be much. I guess it would be kind of a nice life you had, but it's temporal. Now I'm going to make the point, it's both and. But when it comes to what's going on here, you do know 
But in this text, look, look for the response to the gospel. You don't see it. There is going to be some response later, and we know that people are going to have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There was a lot of joy in the city. I'm hoping because some people, like in Luke 15, I hope there were some people that were repentant of their sins. That's the ultimate profound joy. But there was a lot of joy because people were healed. So there's a good response from people for both graces. But I just want you to distinguish the two. And one, I just want you to know, is better than the other. If I were to invite you over to my house this afternoon for a meal, come on over, be there about four. And you say, wow, Pastor Mike. And I'd say, I'm going to cook. So you're like, I'm not even going to have lunch. I hear he's a really good cook. And let's just see, this is all an illustration, very fanciful illustration, but let's just say I'm really good at cooking and I got my apron and everything and uh, I even say to my wife, oh, sit down, put your feet up. She sits in the recliner on the sofa and I'm in the kitchen and I'm just going, man. I got, I got steak and prime rib and I put together an amazing dip for you and I got salad that I grew in the backyard. I'm just going, I, I'm, I'm, I've got this... I got finger foods, I got appetizers, I got the best cashews you've ever tasted. I've laid everything out. I baked a cake, a huge stacked layered chocolate cake. I got it all going on. My wife's just feed up watching YouTube and I am, I'm doing it in the kitchen, whistling while I work. On the way over to my house, you did something really stupid. You got in an argument with a motorcycle gang and you were really dumb, and you said things you shouldn't have, and you even pulled your car over, and you yelled at them, and you spit in the face of a couple of them, and they chased you down to my house. Well, you get in real quick, and I noticed you were kind of going in the, in the front door really fast. I'm like, hey, you're here. It's fantastic. Hey, I got some chips. I got some stuff. You know, enjoy. And you're like, well, I'm getting, getting chased down by the motorcycle gang. They'll be here any second. <laughs> and I hear the motorcycle gang coming, and it just so happened, because I'm really into safety, that I normally wear a bulletproof vest whenever I'm at home. So I've got a bulletproof vest on underneath my apron. And I go for my shotgun behind the door. And I, I can't get to it quite soon enough, because these motorcycle guys start coming through the front door. They got their guns out. And they're gunning for you. And I grab the shotgun as I throw myself in front of the bullets. And you duck behind me and I get a bunch of shots right here in my Kevlar vest as I rack one into the shotgun and blow them all away. Well, that is a surprising ending to our message today, as Pastor Mike vividly illustrates the bulletproof, eternal protection we have as followers of Christ. And he is emphatically urging us to step up and protect people from the dangers they will face in the next life by sharing the message of God's saving grace. You're listening to Focal Point with pastor and Bible teacher Mike Favares and a message called Grateful for Secondary Benefits. And right now, I invite you to go online to access the complete unabridged version of this message, as well as weekly devotionals, Bible Q&A, and so much more at focalpointradio.org. Well, as you heard today, there's no time to lose. We need to speak up for Christ and share the good news before it's too late. That's our mission here at Focal Point. And to keep Focal Point going strong, we need your help. 
Please reach out today and make a donation to support us as we share the truth of God's Word in your community and beyond. When you give this month, we'll send you a terrific book by Josh McDowell and Thomas Williams called How to Know God Exists. It's an excellent resource for answers to commonly asked questions about God, the Bible, and faith in Christ. So request your copy when you make a generous donation by calling us at 888-320-5885 or contacting us online at focalpointradio.org. Or if you prefer, you can send your donation by mail. Our address is Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Now, we're often told to put Christ at the center of our marriage, but what exactly does that look like? Well, tomorrow on Focal Point, you're in for a real treat because Pastor Mike Fabares is welcoming his wife, Carlin, to join him for a discussion about biblical marriage. Don't miss this special message edition of Ask Pastor Mike with Mike and Carlin Fabares. I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us Friday for more Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, we live in a culture where every point of view demands affirmation. It'd be easy to tell people what they want to hear, but we must teach the Bible accurately, unapologetically, and without compromising and without editing it. God's word is truth. If you want to send me a question, I encourage you to get in touch with us at focalpointradio.org. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.